It's awful quiet this morning. Somebody needs to wake up. I don't know if it's the children need to wake up because they usually make a little bit more racket than that going out. And I like the sound of kids as they're leaving. <laughs> I didn't mean that the way it sounded. Probably true, but I didn't mean it that way. Well, um, before we get started, I'm going to remind you that we are under a week away from our marriage enrichment weekend next Friday evening. Next Saturday morning will be our weekend, and so uh, some of my good friends who were here last year with us will be back, Keith and Jackie Harmon. Keith is the minister of adults, minister of, he, I guess, marriage at the, our home church, my, he and I's home church, and he does a phenomenal job. He's one of the best in that area of ministry that I know of, if not the best. And so I really want to encourage you to be here. Here's what I was just thinking about as I sat in there, as we were singing that last song, just thinking about this coming weekend. A lot of times when we hear of an opportunity like this, we only think it's for us if we're in a, in a pinch, right? If there's something bad going on in our marriage, I know, pinch, pinch. It's different of ac- different accents, but... Uh, uh, a lot of times we're reactive rather than proactive. I want to encourage you to be proactive in all of your life, especially your marriage. And so you may think, man, things are great at home. Things are great between me and the spouse. Things are great in our relationship with our kids. I don't need that right now. Talk to me when something's happening. I'd say try to do this on the front end. Be proactive. Be an investor in your family, an investor in your marriage. And you may not have to go through some of the difficulties on the back end that you would on a normal normal day. And so I really want to encourage you, regardless if you've been married two weeks or 20 years or 60 years, uh, be a part of this coming weekend. And today is kind of like the last day to register. And so I want to encourage you to do that, fill out the form that's in the uh, bulletin and leave it there or give it to me or one of our other staff or go online on our events page and just register for the weekend. If you're saying, well, the money's a little much, I can't handle that. You let us know, and we will make sure that you come and enjoy and experience all that's going to be here. Don't let money or anything like that stand in the way. All right? So that's the commercial. Take your Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. We are walking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. We started this back in September, and we've walked through... Now the first five chapters, we've looked at the, uh, the, the seven letters to the seven local churches and what God was speaking to them and how that uh, speaks to us today and in, our, in the age in which we lived. Now we've walked through chapter 4, we've walked through chapter 5, and we come now to chapter 6, and we're seeing here God's appeal to us to be ready because the time is near, as John was told. Uh, the time is near for the return of Christ. The time is near for the end of the world. The time is near for everything that, the, that history's been building toward to come to fruition. And so we need to make sure that we are ready. With that in mind, I don't think I have to inform you or I don't think this is a revolutionary type of information, but the world in which we live is evil. The world in which we live today is wicked. It is a cruel world. If you don't believe me, then if you had your television set on or if you were listening to the radio this past week, you heard the story on Monday where a little six-year-old girl in South Carolina, a girl by the name of Faye, came home from school and went outside to play just like any other normal day. Only this was no normal day for her. As one of her neighbors allegedly came, took her from her home, and allegedly took her life. 
I remember on Monday or Tuesday when I saw the story, as the Amber Alert was going out, as the news stations were picking up the story, and I remember hearing it being reported, and, and my heart broke for this little girl. I just began to, in just a moment, just in the quietness of my mind, beginning to pray for her safety and pray, praying that she would be found. In that same breath, in that same moment, I was also praying vindication and justice to be brought toward anyone who would have harmed the little girl. You see, as a father of three daughters, that tugs at my heart pretty, pretty strongly. And I began to plead for God's justice in that situation. Unfortunately, it did not turn out as all of us would have hoped. But I prayed for justice. Why, why would I pray for justice in that situation? I prayed for justice because I believe it's something that all of us desire. I believe that justice and retribution and seeing it served in situations where it's necessary is the natural desire of mankind. I believe it's innate within of us to, to desire to have justice served. You think about it, justice and retribution dates all the way back to the very beginning of history. You think of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when, actually Genesis chapter 2, God is speaking with Adam. He's this new creation. He's been given dominion over all that God's created. God gave him one stipulation. Adam, you can have anything and everything that I've created, but there's one thing that you shall not eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from it. But the day that you do eat of it, you will die. There was a, a warning of retribution that was given to Adam that if he ate of this tree, justice would be served upon him. And we know the story. We know that Adam and Eve ate from that tree, and they received the sentence of death upon their lives. Later, as the, 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 the story of Scripture continues to unfold, we see that Moses gave God's people instructions concerning retribution in the law that he was given. Exodus chapter 21, these verses are on the screen. It says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. There's this promise, this concept of retribution, justice to be served when harm has been done. See, the reason we naturally long for every wrong to be made right is because God desires the same thing. His justice demands that. So the Bible here makes it clear that God will righteously judge sin, that God will vindicate the suffering of believers. And as we move ahead in the story, here in our study of Revelation, we see justice now beginning to be served upon the people who have rejected God and who are oppressing, killing, and persecuting God's people. Chapter 4, verse 1, just to kind of remind you of what's going on here, we see that John, now that he's received these, these letters or these revelations to these seven churches, Jesus invites John up into heaven so that he could see the things that are going to take place. He sees that God's going to respond toward sin, that God is going to respond toward Satan, that God is going to respond toward the sinners in the end times. And so there in the throne room, John saw the glory and the majesty of God the Father as those four living creatures, as those 24 elders worshipped him. Then in chapter 5, John's eyes focus on the Lamb who alone is worthy to take and to open the scroll of destiny, the unfolding of all that God was going to do to bring an end to history. There in chapter 5, we see that all of heaven erupts in holy worship to both the Father and the Lamb. 
So now as we move in and move closer to chapter 6, the first six of these seven seals which protect the scroll of destiny and its description of the eschaton or the end times is now going to be broken and all the judgments, these preliminary judgments are going to be unleashed. And so let's pick up Revelation chapter 6 and let's read this chapter. John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, or a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and, look, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried, out with a, with a loud, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In two Sundays, two weeks from today, we're going to deal with that question, who can stand? But today, let's look at what leads up to them asking the question of who can stand. The seven seals that we see here, binding this scroll that God the Father has been holding in his hand, now that God the Son, the Lamb, has taken from his hand and is now opening this, these seven seals lead into the key, key theme of Revelation. That is the opening of the scroll, which contains this divine plan for ending the present world order that is under the power of sin. So everything that history's been leading up to now is about to come to fruition. These seven seals are preliminary judgments on the earth. They prepare for the trumpets and the bowls that will come when the scroll is open. 
seals like the trumpets and the bowls divide naturally into two parts. You have the first four judgments, which are judgments poured out on the earth, and then you have the other three, which are cosmic judgments. These three sets of judgments, they work together to accomplish God's purpose. It's almost like this recapitulation where he's sort of laying out this idea that these judgments are going to come and then lays it out again and lays it before us a third time. Grant Osborne in his commentary gives us seven purposes regarding these preliminary judgments that come through these seals. Let me just give these to you this, this morning. This is not in your bulletin, but I think these are interesting. He says, the first purpose is they are judgments from God poured out upon earth dwellers, poured out upon the people of the earth. These are judgments, simple judgments being poured out upon man. You say, well, is it every person these judgments are coming against? I would argue that it's not every single person. It's judgments that are being poured out against earth dwellers. And that idea, that concept is, it it takes into consideration those who have rejected God, his word, and the Lamb. So the judgments are going to be poured out upon apostate mankind, not those who are in Christ, those of the church, those who have been redeemed, as we're going to see as we move into chapter 7, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb will be spared. So these judgments are against those who have rejected the rule of God and the redemption offered by Christ. During this time, as these judgments are being heaped upon the people, The saints of God are protected from the judgments themselves. See, one thing that's happening as we move toward the end times or this eschaton, and this is a preliminary period to when that is unfolding, but what we see is the judgment, the wrath of God against sin is not exhausted on those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. Why is that? It's because the wrath of God against your sin and my sin has already been exhausted. See, when Jesus was on the cross, the Lamb of God offered himself as a sacrifice so that the Father in his holiness, in his justness, in his retribution has exhausted the wrath against your sin and my sin, and Jesus absorbed it, having washed us clean with his blood. So the judgment that we're seeing in Revelation is not against believers, it's against those who continue to reject Christ and the gospel. And so, during this period, the believers will be protected from these judgments. Now, they won't be protected from the recourse from Satan and his demonic powers, as well as those who are under his influence. They will try to destroy the people of God, but God will not pour his wrath out upon his people. So they're protected. We could look at uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where he speaks there to one of the churches, and he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. He's going to speak, or he's going to preserve them from that. Chapter 7, we see that uh, the first eight verses, that these who are sealed are protected. Chapter 9, verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth. This is one of the trumpets. Or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God's judgment during this time is only for those who've rejected his rule and his reign. So in these judgments, God is just in giving the earth dwellers what they deserve for rejecting God and killing his saints. There's a second purpose, and I've got to hurry. 
It's the story of my preaching life. They are God's response to the imprecatory prayers or the prayers of curse, appealing for God to curse those who are harming them. They are God's response to those prayers of the saints for justice and retribution. So God is simply responding to the prayers of his people as they are being oppressed by ungodly and wicked people. Number three, they stress the sovereignty of God over demonic forces. Number four, they show that it's not necessary for God to command evil to do his will, but simply allow it to operate. That's one of the things that I believe we'll see this morning. As we see for sure in these four horsemen is that not so much as God is saying, go do this. He's just unleashing them and they go do what they're supposed to do. They are sinful, wicked to the core, and, and left to ourselves in our sin, we have the same propensity. And so he doesn't have to orchestrate things. He just unleashes and allows demonic forces to do what demonic forces do. Number four, or number five, they prove that total depravity of mankind by man's refusal to repent and turn from demonic powers who war against them. So they prove that man is completely and utterly depraved and refuse. One of the things that just baffles me as I read through the Revelation is all of these judgments being poured out against apostate people, people who have rejected God. You would think that they would come to their senses, bow their knees, humble themselves before the Lord, and cry out for mercy. But all they do, even what we've seen this morning in chapter 6, is they just want the mountains to fall upon them because they know they can't stand before the holiness of God. But rather than reach out and plead for grace and mercy, they continue to shake their fist in the face of God. And so it proves their depravity. Number six, they reveal God's redemptive purpose purpose by offering a final chance to repent. All throughout this, there are opportunities for men and women to repent. This morning, as I said, as I was baptizing, this is a day that someone perhaps needs to give their life to Jesus Christ. You may not have another opportunity. And so God in his grace, God in his goodness, God in his mercy offers to us opportunities to say yes to Jesus. And if we reject that, there will come a day when there are no more opportunities to do so. And number seven, they provide a progressive dismantling of creation in preparation for its final destruction. So these judgments are being used to destroy this creation that has been cursed because of the fall, and it's being destroyed so that it can be remade into a new heavens and a new earth. So as you think about that, keep in mind that the scroll of destiny is not going to be opened until the seventh seal is broken, which takes place in chapter 8, verse 1, and this ushers in the events of this eschaton or this end times unfolding. These here, these, these seals are simply the preliminary judgments leading up to this opening of the scroll. These preliminary judgments of the seven seals represent forces operative throughout history by means of the redemptive and judicial purposes of God. So in some sense, you could say we are living in the days that these things are taking place. Maybe not to the extreme that they will continue or one day take place, but we're living in these days. One of the things we need to just keep aware of here is as we're reading through this apocalyptic book, we need to know that chronology is not of prime importance in the unfolding of this. And I'm a, I like to know dates and stuff. I want to know chronology. I want to know what happens here and there. And we're all kind of like that, but that's not necessarily the main focus of how that is presented to us. 
Um, one commentator I, I read this week said this about it. He said, the unity of John's book is neither chronological nor arith- arithmetical. I don't know how to say that. It's not a, an area of math, but it's artistic. Like that of a musical theme with variations, each variation adding something new to the significance of the whole composition. This is the only view which does adequate justice to the double fact that each new series of visions both recapitulates and develops the themes already stated in what, was go- what has gone before. So when you think about this, this does not mean that an element of chronology is not found because it is. We see that there are steps to this unfolding. Here the seven seals take place prior to this breaking of the seventh seal, which ushers in the end times. So it does mean, though, that the exact chronology is unimportant and therefore not given. And I've told you over and over again as we've started this, our study through Revelation is not so much that we would know every little thing that's going to happen. Our purpose in this is chapter 1, verse 3, that we would be ready because the time is near. We got to be able to recognize that, that things are moving, things are progressing, things are leading us to a culmination of history. When Jesus will return, then Jesus will put an end to sin, an end to death, and end to our enemy. And if we're not ready, we're lumped in with that group. So we need to be ready. And, and as believers, we want to be ready and take as many people to, to heaven with us as we can. It ought to motivate us in our evangelism. So we come to the breaking of these seals. Uh, Let's just kind of walk through this as best we can, and then I'm going to give you three implications rather quickly at the end. The first four seals that we see here unleash what B.M. Mepsker describes as brilliant little vignettes, vignettes of God's judgment working out in history. He says they personify the war and the strife and the famine and the pestilence that, that we see in the synoptic apocalypse. You say, what is the synoptic apocalypse? It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, when he tells us that, that when we begin to see certain things, that the time for his return is coming, that, that the end is coming. Jesus described it in Mark 13, 8 as it's the beginning of birth pains, that you're going to hear about earthquakes and you're going to hear rumors of wars and all these things, these things are going to be taking place and it's supposed to spur us on and alert our attention that the time is drawing near for Jesus to return. So these first four seals bring forth, as we read, four horsemen, similar to the vision that we see in Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter Six, there they are chariots, they're not horsemen. The first writer here in in John's vision goes out, as we read, to conquer or conquering and to conquer. The writer here symbolizes the human lust for war and military conquest. And don't we see that in our world today? That there's this lust for conquest? I mean, if you read back in history, Alexander the Great and, and all of these men of history, they wanted to make something of themselves. And how did they do that? They militarily conquered peoples, right? That's human nature. That's what this first horseman's going to continue. The second rider is on a red horse. He's permitted to take peace from the earth. He symbolizes slaughter and bloodshed. The third rider is on a black horse and carries a set of scales. 
A voice is heard proclaiming the scarcity and famine to come. And then finally, this fourth rider is on a pale horse. The rider's name is Death, and Hades follows after him. See, they are given authority to kill a fourth of mankind. The the news of this judgment or these judgments would have been horrific for John's hearers. I think today when we hear this, we, we, we try to figure out, now, how's it going to happen? What's that going to look like? What's the probability of that really being something that takes place? We analyze the dickens out of it. But these first hearers would not have done that. They would have heard the, the, the judgment and the four horsemen carrying war and bloodshed and famine and death galloping furiously across the stage of their imaginations, and they would have been shaken to the core of who they are in humility before God. We read this knowing that it's a vision, knowing that it's apocalyptic in nature. We need to understand that these visions are to be experienced, not necessarily analyzed. Experience it. Now, go back to Revelation 1.3. The time is near. These visions are given to us to, to do something in us emotionally where we're drawn to the fact that I am an undone person. I am a man of unclean lips, and I have an unclean heart, and I need God to do something in me. Our people need something... For God to do something in them, our nation needs God. There's something that has to happen in us. So as we approach Revelation, we ought to have a sympathetic imagination to really begin to understand God's intention in giving us this word. In these first four interconnected seals, God's judgment is simply to allow human depravity to run its course. And we see this in our world today, right? We see these things. All over the globe, we see terrorism. All over the globe, we see genocide. We can go back in history and we can read about it. We can look across our, our, our globe today and we can see aspects of that. We can see wars taking place. We see murder and racism and bloodshed, and homicides, and you name it. It, it, it. I mean, if you really just pay attention to the news and you hear the atrocities out there, they will make your ears bleed because they're so horrific. We see famine and economic injustices. We see death everywhere and abortion. We see it in this growing concept of euthanasia and its, it, its, its prevalence. And we see from the effects of all of these things how they just compound upon themselves. Today we live in an evil and a cruel world. Unfortunately, it will only continue to get worse as part of God's impending judgment upon man's sin. That's what the four horsemen symbolize. The breaking of the fifth seal reveals an altar in heaven under which the souls of faithful martyrs reside. If the first four seals portrayed the troubled times of the approaching consummation, this fifth seal supplies an interpretation for Christian martyrdom. You see, all that murder and and killing and all of that suffering, a lot of it's been focused toward Christian people, and they're martyred for their faith. And we've seen more martyrdom take place in the last century than we did in the previous 19 centuries. The martyrs are those who stood on behalf of Christ and preached the gospel to a culture which hated them and their message. I didn't read the article, but I saw a headline and read a few uh, lines from the article the other day, but I believe it was in um, Kenya or one of the countries like that in Africa where 
uh, one of the terrorist ex- terrorism cells, uh, took a preacher and, and told him to recant his faith. He refused to do so and, and continued to, to praise the name of Jesus, continued to declare the name of Jesus even as they took his head off. That happens in the world today. So the souls of the martyrs here are pictured under the altar. It's a way of describing them as sacrifices on the altar of heaven from God's perspective. These are men and women who laid their life down in service and in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're given white robes which speak of their blessedness. It speaks of their purity that's been given to them through Christ. And they're told to wait till the full number of the other martyrs come in. Their others are brothers and sisters. I believe it's important here to point out that John knows nothing of a rapture. See, when we read this, many times what we want to think think is this. God will never allow us to go through such suffering and such heartache. That is not true because it's happening today, and it's happened from the very beginning. God's people have always suffered and been persecuted. It happened in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain who cared nothing about the Lord, rose up and took a stone and killed his brother who loved the Lord. He's a martyr for the faith in some sense. So when we read this, I don't think we should take into this the idea that we're going to be preserved necessarily from hard times. We're spared from the judgment of God. That's for apostate mankind. We're not spared from the repercussions of an enemy who wants to destroy us at every turn in our lives. John 15, 12, 1 Timothy 3, 12, verses that speak of the idea that if Jesus was persecuted, I should expect that in my life. If Jesus was crucified, I ought to have an, an anticipation in my life that it's not going to be rosy. Here, here's a thought. Uh, uh, Steve shared this, and I read it yesterday, and I wrote a, a piece on it yesterday. But in our state right now, it's becoming harder to be a faithful Christian. It's, hard, it's becoming harder, and it will continue to be that, to be able to stand on the Word of God and call what God calls sin, sin without some sort of retribution coming back from our government. But this is what we'll do. This is what this preacher will do. We will stand on the word of God. We will declare what God says despite what may come against us because we're called to be a people of God, not a a minion of whatever the government would say or culture would say for us to be. The day for easy believism is over. Cultural Christianity has gone bye-bye, and good riddance to it. It was never supposed to be that to begin with. And so we have to see ourselves as those who lived in the book of Acts rather than those who lived in the 20th century with um, much of the church growth movement stuff that we've experienced. So many good things, but cultural Christianity is an, a bad byproduct that came from it. So this is a vision. So the souls of the martyrs are not kept away in some sort of immediate state. I just want to point that. I don't believe what we're seeing here is, is these martyrs, that their souls are sort of kept in some sort of intermediate state. No, to be absent from the Lord is to be present with the Lord 
or to be absent for the bodies to be present with the Lord. And so I believe this is simply a vision to speak of the fact these men and women gave their life for Christ. They're being honored for that. And it's a way for them to, to, to speak to us today, to encourage us in our faithfulness. It's also this idea of what we see in Genesis 4.10, where the blood of Abel cries out to God for retribution. And so the Lord in this vision is showing us that nothing is left unknown. God knows all things. God knows what sacrifices we give. And our blood, the, that of our, our brothers and sisters who are martyrs, cries out to God for retribution, for vindication one day. So martyrdom is going to increase as we move ever closer to the eschaton. Now we move to the sixth seal. The breaking of this seal comes in response to the question of the martyrs. How long before you judge and avenge our blood? God doesn't answer here in terms of chronology. He doesn't say, uh, come back and see me on, on April 2nd of 2047. It's not what he says. But nonetheless, he gives an answer, and his answer clearly conveys the certainty of retribution, and we see it unfolding. Great cosmic disturbances are going to come to pass in secular society. Responsible for the deaths of these believers will come to understand that it's God Almighty that's doing this. The sun is going to be darkened. The moon is going to turn to blood. They're going to see the, that the stars in heaven are falling. Now, obviously, the stars are probably not going to fall, but it's going to be so cosmic. Maybe it's meteorites coming through the thing, but they're going to feel the awesome of a holy God against them, but rather than repent and turn from their sin, they're going to hide themselves in rocks and under cliffs in the mountains. They're going to beg that all of the things that are happening would crumble the mountain on top of them so they would rather die than face a holy God. What they don't understand is that in their death, they face a holy God. We will all stand and give an account. There will be a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so with that in mind, let me quickly, two minutes passed already, let me quickly give you three implications that we should take home with us this morning. Implication number one, man is totally depraved, therefore we must realize the effects of sin on us. These judgments coming from the four horsemen are simply the unleashing of, what, of sin and what sin does to us, what it does in us. See, if left to ourselves, devoid of the restraining, gracious hand of God in our lives and in our culture, we will do incredibly evil things. The heart is deceptively wicked, and who can know it? prominent preacher, and I'm not sure exactly, I don't remember exactly who it was, one day saw a murderer on death row and said, but for the grace of God, there go I. As a human being, as a son of Adam, as a daughter of Eve, we all have the propensity to sin and to sin greatly. We need to realize that, that we are totally depraved, sinners to the core, it's affected every aspect of who we are as human beings. We naturally lean toward selfishness. We naturally lean toward tribalism. We naturally lead toward hostility in our lives. And left to ourselves, without the grace of God and the goodness of God and the redemption of Jesus, we can become extremely evil people. And the reason for that is we are evil people. Does that mean we're as bad as we could be? No. 
But it does mean, total depravity means all of us are wicked to the core. We just may not always show it to the extremes that others may be. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what do we do? As believers, as disciples of Christ, we must seek to put sin to death in our mortal bodies. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, nevertheless, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Chapter 5, verse 24 tells us that we're to crucify the flesh. We're to put it to death in our lives. That's what sanctification is all about. That's implication number one. We're depraved, so we need to understand and know the effects it has on our lives. Number two, martyrdom is both the final victory over Satan and a great responsibility for believers. Therefore, we must be willing to lay our lives down for Christ. This chapter calls for faithfulness despite the opposition. It's a reminder that God is faithful and that followers, that as followers of Christ, we must be willing to take up our cross and die for him if need be. We must be like Bishop Polycarp that I shared with you several weeks ago when we were looking at the church of Smyrna and the letter there. Bishop Polycarp in 156 A.D., was brought before the tribunal, brought before this Roman official, and was told that if you don't renounce your atheism in their mindset, because he, he, he rejected the gods of Rome, of Rome, if you don't reject this, if you don't recant your faith in Jesus, then we're going to kill you. Bishop Polycarp was about 86 at this point. Three different times rejected their appeal for him to recant his faith. He said, 86 years I've served Christ and he's done me no wrong. How then, I can, how then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was not spared that day. A fire was built. Soldiers grabbed him. They were going to nail him to the stake that he was going to be burned upon. Polycarp said, no, don't do that. I'll stand here. There's no reason to, burn, or to, to nail me to the stake. I will stand here. And he stood there as the fires heaped upon him and he died faithfully, giving his life for Jesus. If you read some, they will say that his death had a sweet-smelling aroma. I don't know if that's true, but I can see God honoring him in that way. He suffered well to the very end. Persecution and martyrdom have always been the favorite tools of our enemy. I mean, think about what Satan tries to do with this. He tries to scare the believers into a corner. But by doing this, by, by persecuting, by putting people in prison, by having them killed for their faith. But what does history teach us? History teaches us that when the temperature begins to rise, the kingdom of God beca- continues to spread, and even much faster. Martyrdom is our victory, and it's our responsibility to rest in God's faithfulness as we lay our lives down for Christ. Now, will you and I more than likely die for our faith? Probably not. We still live in America. But we ought to live in such a way that our life is an offering before him every single day. We will stand for what he stands for, and we will not stand for what he does not stand for. Number three, God will vindicate every sacrifice and suffering experienced by believers. Therefore, we must remain faithful and trust his goodness. That's what we're seeing there in these, this last, last seal that's broken. He's going to vindicate. He's going to bring retribution. See, due to the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus, that's why Polycarp was able to stand and refuse to deny Christ in his greatest trial. His sacrifice is similar to that of Stephen's in Acts chapter 7. You remember that story. He's the first Christian martyr. 
there, actually, Saul of Tarsus is standing and approving of what's taking place. And Stephen, he preaches this beautiful sermon, appealing to his brothers in the, in the Jewish religion, his brothers in Israel, to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's been proclaimed to them. And as he preaches this message, they are so mad, they're gnashing and gnawing their teeth. But Stephen, he looks up and sees Jesus in heaven, standing on the, on the throne of heaven, standing on his behalf. And even as he's being pelted to death with stones, what does Stephen say? Lord, receive my spirit and don't hold their actions against them. He dies graciously. He dies gloriously. He dies faithfully. How could he do so? He understood that there's coming a day that Jesus will vindicate the suffering he's endured. Today we can and we should remain faithful because what we give to God, he receives as a sacrifice. And thankfully, he will bring retribution to those who sin against his people. This retribution that God's going to pour out on an apostate man will be so intense, it will be so severe, they will recognize that no one can stand before holy God. That's how chapter 6 now is closing. Who can stand before the day of the wrath of the Father and of the Lamb? Who can stand before this holy God? Who then today can stand before such a God? I really can't wait to get to chapter 7 and really unveil this for you. But let me just give you a peek to who can stand. The one who can stand before God is the one who has the seal of God on his or her forehead as it's laid out in chapter 7. It's the one who has washed his or her robe in the blood of the Lamb. And today, as I've been saying throughout this, God is holy, God is righteous, God is just. He will deal with the sin, but thankfully, he's already dealt with sin in the cross. See, the way we can stand before a holy and vindictive God, and that's not a bad term, by the way. That just means he's just and he's going to stand for what's right. The way we as a sinner can stand before a holy God is having our lives, our hearts, our minds, our being washed and cleansed in the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross, the sacrifice that was given. That's how we stand. It tells us that we're, we have a good God. The Bible tells us that he loves us, that he cares for us. I mean, in this room this morning, there's a lot of you here that I don't even know. Some of you I've never seen before. You're here perhaps for the first time, or you just hide really well. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know what everyone's story is. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your mind, in your heart, in your home, in your marriage, with your kids. I don't know what's going on with your health. I don't know if you're going to on your way to heaven or if you're not on your way to heaven. But I do know this, that no matter where you're at, God loves you because he created you. He cares for you. He's so stinking passionate about you that he will bankrupt all of heaven to make sure you're in the kingdom. That's how much he loves you. And the good news is, is this, despite all the brokenness in your life, all the junk in your life, all the, all the sin that you deal with and, and divorces that you've been through or, or whatever it is that's so broken, you deal with alcoholism or drug addiction, you're a sex addict, whatever your brokenness is, it doesn't compare to what Jesus can and wants to do as he remakes you in your life. We're all a bunch of messed up, broken people, but for the grace of God. And so this morning, if you're a broken person that needs a relationship with Jesus, in a moment we're going to have a time of response, and I'm going to invite you to come. All you've got to do is say is, I need 
to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. We'll get you with one of our encouragers. They'll walk through the gospel message with you and help you make that decision. If you're a believer that's walking at a guilty distance and you need to come home, today's the day. Make this, these steps here an altar to the Lord. If you want someone to pray with you, you come. We'll get one of our encouragers to minister and pray with you. But God is good, is he not? He's faithful. He's good to his people. Let's thank him for it. Father, this morning, I'm grateful that there's coming a day that sin will be dealt with full and complete. I'm thankful that death will be tossed into the lake of fire. I'm thankful that our enemy will be tossed into the lake of fire. I'm thankful for all of those who rejected you and sought to destroy your people will be done away with and will experience all that they've chosen to experience. You are a righteous, holy God. And as such, there's no way that we can be acceptable before you in and of ourselves. Our righteousness, our good works, our good thoughts, our good intentions are nothing but filthy, blood-soaking, nasty rags in your sight. But you've made a way for us. That's through the cross. Where the holy blood of a sinless Savior was shed to pay my penalty and to take my judgment. Father, many of us have experienced that. Those that were baptized earlier have experienced that. God, there's someone this morning in this room that is not. They may be religious. They may be able to quote the Bible. They may have walked in here this morning and have no idea what we're talking about, but they need a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray today would be the day for them. God, for us as believers, I pray that we would just see your glory and your goodness, see your power and your might. God, may it fuel our faith that we would be willing and, and, and determined to stand in the power of God and the Word of God and, and live a life that pleases you. God, that we would be salt and light in a culture that is becoming ever so dark. Lord, I pray you'd bless us in this time of response. Draw us closer to yourself. Give us freedom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand to your feet. If you need to make a decision this morning, a public decision, please come. We will not embarrass you. I will not make you dance or do any goofy stuff up here. We just want to minister to you this morning. I firmly believe that public response is the best way to respond. It's no closet Christianity. It's a public Christian faith. So I want to encourage you to obey God, follow God's leading, and just watch what He wants to do. He will do it. Can you do that?